The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. A number of years ago when we bought our house here in Shingle Springs, there were there were some things about the house that we knew if we bought it we would want to change. There were some uh, decorations, there were some paintings in our dining room, there was chili pepper wallpaper that was a little too festive for us that we knew would be one of those things. There were some weird planters also in that, that room as well, but there was something even weirder in one part of the property that we went to in this side building. As we walked in, there was a I don't know any other way to describe it than a creepy Virgin Mary uh, staring right at you, eye level, as you walk into this place. And so one of our little kids said, Mom, Dad, what's that? And so we had to have a conversation about idols. And evidently this had been a place where someone would go into this place and would kneel and would look to and pray to, looking at this image of Mary the mother of Jesus. And so as we bought the house, we got rid of that pretty quickly and the chili pepper wallpaper, and the planters as well. But it, it was reminding me, as we, as we even walked into that, of the Philippines where I grew up. In the Philippines, everywhere you go, and even out in the community and places where you're at stores, you'll, you'll see these Santo Ninos, these baby Jesus statues. You'll see religious icons all over the place, graven images that, that people pray to, uh, carve statues of Jesus as an adult that also some of them will literally, I've seen places where they come on their knees and they come and kiss the, the feet of this statue. Many serve paintings of saints and they, they pray to them and look at them as they do that. Many trust in, actually all around the world, trust in crucifixes, crucifixes superstitiously. So at our house, that image is gone. But idols aren't gone. And I'll explain more what I mean about that later in the message. There's some idols that can't just be painted over. There's some that leave a mark, and there's some where the stain remains, even if you try to deal with them. There's some that keep coming back. And that's what we're going to look at here today. If you would please turn in God's Word to Exodus 20. We are... Continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, if you are joining us, last week we studied the first commandment, and, and if you weren't here last week, you'll, you'll want to listen to that because it helps kind of complete the picture. The first commandment in verse 3 is, you shall have no other gods before me. Today in verse 4, we're going to study the second commandment, but I know a number of you grew up Catholic or Lutheran, and you, you may have never heard of this Commandment, even if you went through catechism, went through confirmation in the classes and all of that, they count the first commandment as verses 3 through 6. So not just verse 3, but verse 6, kind of summing that all up together and just simply summing it up as no other gods. And then they, for them, moving past verse 6, the second commandment they would list is verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or you shall not misuse his name. So verses 4 through 6 are essentially skipped over for over a billion people in the world, and they're not studied as a separate or a second commandment. 
And many Catholics pray in worship, and in fact, they're taught to do this, and they bow to graven statues unaware because they've never read verse 5 that tells them not to. So you might be wondering, well, how do they, do they just have nine commandments? When they get to the 10th commandment, what they do is they divide verse 17 into two. So you've got don't covet your neighbor's wife or house, and then you've got don't covet for number, that'd be number nine. Number 10 would be don't covet anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And so that's how they come up with 10. And that avoids questions about verses four through five, questions that would come up if you come to worship every week and you see all around you these images, you see these statues, you see these paintings, likenesses of people who are in heaven, who are saints. But God's law isn't taught enough in evangelical churches anymore. And I want us to know that even if that's never been something you've been tempted to, there are ways that we also can be guilty of this a lot more than you might think. We are not under the Mosaic law in the way that Old Testament Israel was, but God's moral law is above all. And this is a principle in this commandment that goes through all Scripture. But we're going to look specifically at Exodus 20, verse 4 to start, where God is telling his people how not to worship. Look at the text, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. This is for all time. And we're going to see the New Testament affirms this. We'll see that later in the message. But first, I think we need to start by talking about the first two commandments in the way that God laid them. How is verses 4 through 6 a different or distinct commandment? You might think it, it does kind of sound similar. I can see where some would get that. So you shall have no other gods before me in verse 3. How is that different from verses 4 through 6? I think the first command, one of the ways to look at that, shows us who the one true God is. And then as we move into the second command, it, it builds on that to tell us how that one true God is to be worshipped and how he's not to be worshipped. You could also say verse 3 starts in the heart. No other God is before me. We looked at that last time. He must be number one. But this other command then clarifies that it's not just about that. It now involves the body. It's what your hands make. It's, it's what your eyes see. It's what your heads or your body would bow to as well. The first commandment, we might say, is to prioritize the right God, the only God. The second command includes we need to praise this God rightly. So not just have the right God we need to worship him rightly the way he tells us to. God in his word dictates and regulates worship that he accepts. That's sometimes called the regulative principle of worship. But it makes sense that God would tell people how he is to be worshipped. This was the, the whole world, the ancient world, had no idea how their gods were to be worshipped. So they came up with all these different forms. But God graciously, from the beginning of the commandments, is telling him how 
to be worshipped, starting with how not to worship me like the rest of the world. So it's not enough to honor and serve the right God. He says it must be in the right way. Verse 3 forbids having false gods. But verses 4 through 5 also forbid worship of the true God falsely. So it's not just no false gods, first commandment. It's also don't worship even the true God in a false way. And praying is a part of worship in Scripture. We're not to pray to people in heaven or pictures of them. We could also, as we look at verse 4, see that it covers both the three-dimensional, the graven or the carved objects, but also the the language of of the term would include any two-dimensional art or any likeness or image that we would worship. We can think of Old Testament history, how many different images and idols they worshipped. I was thinking of the story of of how pagans bowed to Dagon, the, the Philistines. And there was a time where God, his presence in those days was in the ark. And actually, the Ten Commandments, including this commandment, was in the Ark of the Covenant. that was captured by the Philistines, and they bring it in their temple, and they put it before Dagon. But then they go there in the morning, and they see Dagon is actually bowing down to the presence of the true God. It's a little embarrassing. So they, they prop him back up. And then they probably make him safe, make sure, I don't know what happened, but we don't want to make sure, that's, that's a little embarrassing when our priests come and see our God bowing down to the presence of the true God. They, they stand him back, prop him back up, and then they come back on the next day, this is in 1 Samuel 5, Dagon is not only bowing down, but his head has come off, and his hands are coming off. And this is a visual picture to say, that your, your gods are nothing, they can do nothing, God is the one true God, and he has just defeated your God graphically. But you see, the problem was not just worshiping false gods, not just idolatry of false gods. This is also going to tell Israel, even when you're worshiping the true God, you need to be very careful with imagery and idolatry. And so what I want us to consider, and and really in all the commandments, we're starting with the context, what this meant for Israel, Israel's context of idolatry, and then scriptures or imagery, and then scriptures. Scripture's concept of idolatry, and it will expand that to other scriptures in the Old and New Testament, and then our application of all this. But we start with the context of Israel. In verse 2, God is reminding them he has just brought them out of Egypt. So as he gives these first two commands, he tells them first, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And Egypt was a land full of idols and images, religious Religiously, all kinds of creatures from creation. Some of them were real. Some of them were imagined. If you've seen anything the, of the ancient Egyptians, you'll, you can probably even picture now some half-god, half-human kind of creatures. Um, half-cat, half-human. You've got eagles, and, and they would wear things on their heads and, and their statues and their monuments. Some of them still to this day you can see those. They would carve statues of sphinxes. Their, their pharaohs would have these graven images of, of snakes, the serpents that would be up on their crowns, but they also had mythical underworld gods. So even when it talks about even anything under the earth and in the sea, they had gods of those as well. And verse 4 is forbidding Israel to worship like that. Don't think that's how true worship is to be 
There is to be no making or taking of images from creation or even from your imagination made up images for worship. David Pallison, in his article on idolatry, said this, quote, Idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. That's from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And he brings out there's other terms that are, that are used that are equivalent to idolatry, even lusts and desires in the New Testament language, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But just think about the Old Testament here in this context. Go forward to chapter 32. And keep in mind the the plagues when they came actually hit Egypt's gods. And so Egypt, for example, had sacred cows, literally. They they worshipped them. And God sent plagues, among other things, to strike down those those cattle in the field. Pharaoh and others would wear golden golden horns of, of cattle. And that was like kind of their image to say that they were a god. That's the context that Israel lived in 430 years before what we're about to read. And it helps us explain what's going on in Exodus 32, verse 3. It says, so all the people, 32, 3, all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And when I heard that story growing up, I was thinking, oh, they're, they're, they're worshiping an Egyptian god. But notice verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's to Yahweh. He's using the covenant name of Israel's God. He's not saying this is a, a, a calf after an Egyptian god we're worshiping. He's saying this is our worship, this is our feast to Yahweh. And, and they, because of their culture, thought a cow or a calf was how you represent deity. Aaron is wanting them to worship the right God using an image of God in their mind and in their culture. He's using the name Yahweh or Jehovah, or the Lord in all capital letters. He's calling them to worship the right God. But listen, it's in the wrong way. That's the problem. You might have argued, this is just a visual image. This is just to to help, to to represent God, the, 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 the God we need to be reminded of. We need to remind ourselves of him so we can worship him rightly. And Aaron might have even said, we're not worshiping the gold We're just worshiping the God that it represents, that it reminds us of. But God says, no, you shall not grave or make or take any man-made image to worship, to bow to, to serve me. And it's not just the image maker who's guilty here. It's not just Aaron who made the image. All Israel is guilty guilty here for worshiping what someone else had made. So this isn't just about us making, it's also worshiping what has been made with human hands. We need to also, as we think about forbidding Israel's worship from creation or imagination, really anything in creation, we can think of false gods or images of the, the true God, but here's, here's a question outside of worship. What about art? 
What about statues? What about things that we don't praise or pray to, which is a part of worship? Well, God allows, actually in this same book, carved images, creating artistic likenesses when it's not for worship. And I want you to see that. Go to chapter 31, just one chapter before this, what I just read. Chapter 31, verse 3. And this is outside of their, their worship. God's Spirit was filling and gifting people. Chapter 31, verse 4, actually. He, he called them to devise artistic designs. This was God's Spirit gifted them to, to make artistic designs. There's nothing wrong with artistic designs and talents. To work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. God calls them and, and gifts them to do that. And, but this is not something they were to worship. Go to chapter 25, and the, the same word for make in the second commandment is actually commanded in another context. Where we see words like craftsmanship, cutting, carving, creating art. That that is not only okay, but it's actually we can glorify God if we do it in a way that we do not worship it, and also if it's not intended to picture God. So it's not just about not worshiping it, but we're also not to try to portray and picture God in what we make, which would always fall short of it. In Exodus 25, verse 18, and they're making the Ark of the Covenant, God commands, verse 18, and you shall make, by the way, the same verb in the, the second commandment for what you shall not do to worship, you shall make two cherubim of gold. Cherubim were these angelic creatures, heavenly creatures, of hammered work, you shall make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, so this is on the Ark of the Covenant, and they would be over the mercy seat. Verse 20, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And so he's got them on the ark, and their, their faces are in, intentionally meeting together, but pointing down, and, and really their wings are, are even covering the, the ark where God's glory was. So their faces weren't seen, but also Israel was not to worship them. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make, here's this word make again, you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So here's that word make, and it's used of of artwork, imagery, 2D imagery, as well as the, the 3D carved images on the ark. Same Hebrew word make from chapter 20, used of images that were commanded by God for that context, but the congregation of Israel did not go into this holiest place for worship. This is not where or how they worship. They were outside. Later they would meet in synagogues where they were very careful not to have images like that. Only the high priest would go into that curtain and would go in in particular one just one time a year towards the ark. But any reverent high priest, as he would go in in that holiest of holy days, he would dare, would not dare to worship what was on the ark. He would even be careful looking at it from what the command had said. He didn't want to die. Later in their history, they would actually tie ropes 
around their ankles and with bells to hear if they're moving around and jingling because it was possible they could die in there if they weren't worshiping God rightly and they'd have to be pulled out. No one else would want to go in there or they would die. So that was something that developed later. That priest did not bow to a cherub. When they would come to that curtain, they would, they would not dare in that holy place to dishonor God by worshiping that. And the people were not to use those images in their corporate worship or their private worship. There's no artistic likeness that we're to use to praise or to pray towards. And this is so different than the rest of the world, what God is laying down in this commandment. So Kevin DeYoung says, maybe some of you are wondering about this, this doesn't mean you have to trash your nativity set. doesn't mean you need to get rid of any angel ornament or artwork on the wall necessarily, but it does mean not using pictures or icons to focus on especially in prayer or any kind of worship, if you bow to or if you focus on or if you think you need that physical object or image to be closer to God, that's what this commandment is warning about. And the context here is Israel's worship. Jesus would say later in John four twenty four that we are to worship in spirit and truth. It's to be spiritual worship. It's different than all other religions. And this also brings up another question because we are to worship Jesus. So what about images of him in art, movies, TV shows, crucifixes? This is an area where not all Christians would agree, but I think we can start, first of all, if you have an object like a cross necklace, Never trust that for help or or make that a superstitious good luck charm. I think it's okay to have an empty cross in particular with with no one hanging on it. And there's a reason Christians have historically done that, Protestant Christians, because Jesus died once for all and he's risen. He's now in heaven. We're not to make a likeness of what's in heaven, but even as we see an empty cross or as we're reminded of an empty tomb that reminds us of Jesus has finished his work and his sacrifice. There's nothing to be completed or added by our works or our worship to get us to heaven. But in particular, in worship services, any likeness of God the Son, we need to be incredibly careful about it. I'm incredibly uncomfortable about that when this warning tells us not to worship, to serve, or to bow before a likeness of any heavenly thing or being. But I would also say, even privately, pictures of Jesus that you might look at, even in, in your private worship or in your prayer time. I think you need to be incredibly careful about that. That's not the biblical way we're told to worship or pray. Or even man-made images before your eyes, or even just in your mind that you go to as you sing and, and worship to him. We need to be very careful and Outside of a worship service, this is where I think it's more debatable. I think there can be a place for visual teaching aids from the Gospels. And I I think of our our brother there in in the village trying to tell Gospel stories to them and having some kind of visuals in his evangelism or our kids teaching them, kids' curriculum. Um, Our generations of grace, our Sunday school materials we were using downstairs before this worship service they, it's interesting how they, and I think I know why they did this, when they have these pictures of gospel stories, they don't show Jesus' face. 
They, they have these cartoon drawings. They have faces of others. And, and I think they're, they're showing you that, that this is a, a real person, but they're only showing him from behind, and it's generic, nonspecific parts. And it's not a facial likeness. Some of you remember, if you've seen movies through the years, in Ben-Hur, I don't know, was that the 60s or whenever that was, as you see Jesus, you see a shadow of him. You, you, see, you see him from behind, or you see him from a distant view, but it seems very intentional. They, want, they didn't want to give you a, a likeness of his face, which none of us know exactly what that would look like. And I, I, I like not having facial images of our Lord that we worship or that can impact our, our worship. And, and think about this also. In New Testament times, they did make images, likenesses, statues, busts, carved images of of people who wanted to capture their looks. When that was important to, to certain Romans, they would have those made, but that was not important to Jesus. He didn't leave us a visual. He left us a verbal word. So I know outside of, of worship that can be debatable for some, but I think we need to be very careful. We need to be careful also not to add to the sufficient gospel. It also makes me nervous when, when things are added that Jesus didn't actually say or wrong images of who Jesus is. I think we need to be very careful with that. And so go back to Exodus 20, but that's a question that comes up that I think we have to wrestle with. And my conscience would urge caution with any likeness of our heavenly Lord. But what's clear and and undebatable in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5, is there's a warning against physical or visual images of what is heavenly in worship, and not just another God, but even representing God. And so that takes us to number two, Scripture's concept of idolatry. Let me read verse 4 in the New American Standard, chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. So, so verse 5 goes with verse 4. We're talking about what you would, or who you would worship or serve in the way that you should only serve God. And so it's forbidding worship imagery, likenesses of God, and idolatry, which is a more specific word for a false god or a false representation of the True God. And verse 5 also forbids worshiping or serving idols others make. And it's not just carved images, but anything in creation can become an idol. I think that's a very important point to recognize. Anything created that is in the place of the Creator. And we'll see that in the New Testament in just a little bit. But God here is a jealous God of covenant love. And so, one reason this is so serious is Scripture's concept of idolatry also compares it to spiritual adultery. That's how serious this is to God. And like adultery, idolatry in the Old Testament could receive the death penalty. And in the New Testament, when it talks about church discipline, if an idolater doesn't repent in in 1 Corinthians 5 or in the end of Revelation, the very last part of the Bible, it talks about idolaters ending up in hell and not heaven. This is serious And this is urgent that we understand this rightly. 
There is wrath that Ephesians talks about is coming on the idolater. And the scripture, as we expand this, the scripture also tells us graciously how we can flee that wrath to come, how we can flee idolatry, how we can flee to Christ. But even in this life, verse 5 warns of long-lasting consequences from this sin. More than others in the Ten Commandments, when it talks about visiting them unto the third and the fourth generation, visiting like he had visited Egypt and their plagues and their punishments. And so turn to Romans 1, because I think we need to let the New Testament fill out this scriptural concept of idolatry, not just for Israel. And, and we've been talking in this series about God's moral law or a morality that people know who, who don't even have the Old Testament law or haven't been taught it. Romans 1.19 talks about, this is universally since creation, that which is known about God is evident within them. This is humanity. Romans 1.19, for God made it evident to them. Romans 1.20, now, for since the creation of the world. So this is before the law was given at Sinai and all the way up until when Paul's writing, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So God is invisible, but we can, we can see through what he's been made, his invisible attributes, his power. We can see he's a mighty God. He says, being understood through what has been made so that they, that's human beings, are without excuse. This is one of the things that makes every human being, this sin right here, all around the world, since creation, this is what makes everyone inexcusable, even if they haven't heard God's law or gospel. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So they knew from these things some truths about God, but they did not honor him as God, which we might say is the, the violating the first commandment. They're not honoring him as number one for who he is. But then the next domino that falls is the second commandment. Look at verse 23. And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. There's this incorruptible God, but they want an image, something down to size, something maybe they can feel like they can control, or something that's not the fullness of who he is, for an image in the form of corruptible man. So images of of, of people and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Those would be all the idols of the pagans. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here it is. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over. And I think when it goes on from that second commandment, if you will, to talk about giving them over, that that may be a part of what it means for sin coming on generations to come that continue in that pattern. I think we could look at verses 26 through 32 in the three or four generations represented in this room and I would say we've seen this exactly play out. And it's interesting that verses 27 through 30 in particular cover several of the Ten Commandments violated. But it all starts with number one and number two. 
And so go back to Exodus 20, but I, I think we need that framework of imagery and idolatry for anything that's a part of this created world that we serve, as he says, in the way that we should only serve God. Worshiping or serving anything created instead of the invisible creator. Any image of anything here, it could be self-image. It could be serving the flesh. We're serving the flesh more than we are serving God. But self itself can be an idol. Maybe one of the biggest ones. And in Romans 1, sexual lust becomes idolatrous. Our wants become our worship. And that leads to giving over more and more over time. This is, this is a very serious warning and I think we need to look at Exodus 25 more closely. What does this exactly mean? When it talks about God visiting or judging iniquity on the children to the third or to the fourth generation, there's some who have taught generational curses based on this verse. Or, or Bill Gothard, I was reading, some of you uh, studied his materials in, in a past generation. He, he warned against adoption because you don't know the idols of the father or the forefather. And he had some teaching about that, believing this is a, a curse. But you notice the language of a curse is not used here. I, th- I think we need to recognize there are consequences that can come for sin in particular and this sin. But think about this. Israelite patriarchs often lived with their children and their grandchildren. It was not uncommon for, and some of the scholars point this out, three or four generations to be living in the same tent or the same little group of tents. And to put it simply, maybe the simplest thing this is saying is that a father's iniquity impacts the whole family. It impacts all of those he's living with. We could also see even how sins in particular, apart from God's grace, can get carried on in a family. Think of Abraham. He lied about his wife when he went to, I think it was Egypt. And then his son Isaac gets in a similar situation. I think it's with Abimelech or another, another king. And he lies about his wife being his sister because he's, uh, he's concerned that he might die because she's beautiful. So we've got Abraham, the second generation, Isaac. The third generation didn't do much better, did it? Jacob is the notorious and, and his... His mom didn't help either. She convinced him to deceive Isaac, to lie to dad, to get the inheritance. And then Jacob, what happened in Jacob's family with that fourth generation? We've got his sons come and lie to him, and they bring this multicolored robe with animal blood on it and say, we don't know what what happened to him. What do you think? And, And he's deceived to believe that his son had been killed by wild animals when they actually sold him as slaves. That's four generations there where we see the sin of the father being carried on. This is a sobering thing for us as fathers, as parents, to know that our sin doesn't just impact us. But listen, you you can't miss this point. Any descendant, any person by grace can be saved to love God and to break the cycle. I mean, look at, look at the end of verse 5, because I think some people stop here. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers 
to the third, on the children to the third and the fourth generation. But here's the key phrase, the fourth generation of those who hate me. So this is the generations who hate him, but, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here's the good news for kids, grandkids, or any others. Uh, There is a warning here. If you hate God, you're going to be judged, and and the the sins there and the judgment is going to keep visiting you. But God, don't forget, but God. But God shows saving love. God shows his saving love to children that he adopts who love him and by his grace obey him and are transformed. And, and I love the math, three to four over here versus thousands. Yes, it could be three to four over here, but then there's thousands of generations over here. Endless love, there's greater grace. So we, we sing sometimes, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. He has grace greater than all sin and God Romans 5 says, but God shows his love. So this is talking about, but God shows his love. Here's the greatest way. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is the greatest way that God shows his love to, to thousands, and we might say to millions who, who have been saved by him to, to love him. God shows his love in Jesus. In Jesus keeping the law. For us, in Jesus dying for idolaters, in Jesus dying for people who hated him at the time and then rising in love. This is the one to bow before, to bow before this Jesus. And if, you, if he's your Lord, if he's your king, as we sang earlier, you can also sing that my name is graven on his hands. It's, it's carved on his, on his heart, as, as the prophet Isaiah said, if he is your Lord. And so as you flee idolatry, you need to flee to Christ. His, his arms and his hands are open wide to sinners who will come to him to be saved, to be cleansed. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to what? cleanse us from all unrighteousness, no matter your past, no matter what else has happened. There is grace, and so that's our application. Look to Jesus alone. Look to Jesus alone as the image of the invisible God that we worship. In fact, the language used in Colossians 1.15 is he is the image, he is the icon, is the Greek word, of the invisible God. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.29. After it warns the children of Israel about idolatry, God promises this to a future generation of Israel maybe even a thousand generations in the future, he says this, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4.30, listen to this, in the latter days, he tells Israel, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers. This is that steadfast covenant love that God shows. No matter how many generations of Jews lived in idolatry in the latter days, in the end times, as sure as everything else he says in the Torah, God promises Israel will return to this merciful God. This is part of what Ian Murray called the Puritan hope in his book by that title, that God will purify and save Israel before the end. 
Zechariah 12 and 13 describes a day when Jerusalem will look on Jesus whom they have pierced. And it says they will mourn, they will repent. Grace is going to be poured out on them. And it says this, he will cleanse them and he will banish their idols once and for all. And that should give hope to us. No matter what's happened in your past, no matter what your father or other people in your family have done, and I know there's been hurtful and horrible things in some of your past. There's been trauma, there's pain, there's, there's incredibly difficult things that have happened to people in this room, but that does not define you. That's not who you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is hope as you look to this loving Lord that he can cleanse you and he can redeem you, and he can give you a future in his family. And listen to this from Ezekiel 18.20. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. So just in case that wasn't clear, Ezekiel writes that, I think because of how some were misunderstanding the second commandment. He says, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity. There's grace if he turns. But don't miss this. We're not okay if we don't set up idols in our homes. Maybe some of you have been like, wow, I'm glad I don't have statues and shrines that I pray to. Listen to what Ezekiel 14.3 says. These men have set up idols in their hearts. Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols. So we're not just talking about graven outwardly, a God inwardly, not just metal images, but mental images of God. If you say, well, I feel God is, whatever the rest of that sentence is, or I like to think of God as, be careful because that mental imagery right there is often going to be idolatry in the very next phrase. It's idolizing if you are prioritizing certain attributes of God. One way it might look like this is, My God is a God of love. He's not a condemning God. Well, what does Scripture say? You're you're now putting a God in there that's different than Scripture that actually has both. You You can also make an idol by trying to take to yourself what only God should have. Maybe that could be control. I mean, an idol can be power. An idol can be people pleasing, that, that that really consumes you. Pleasing people far more than God is really what drives you or, or pride. 1 Samuel 15.23 says this about pride. Arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Or another translation, stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. Listen to Colossians 3.5. It's there on your screen. It says, among other things, to put to death. Put to death covetousness which is idolatry. Covetousness, the New Testament says, Paul says, inspired by God, covetousness is idolatry. And so that just opens up a whole other realm. The King James Version links it to inordinate affection. It's, it's affection for things that's, that's too high, that's the place that only God should have. It can be affections, it can be addictions. It can be addictions even to technology that rules you in, in a way that God is supposed to rule you and have that place 
in your life. I think a major idol of our day that we have to fight against, and I'm concerned about it in my own heart, my own home, is screens that can be like shrines that we serve and, and center things around in, in our home or in our, in our hand. I think devices can become like deities. What, what do you turn to for help? What do you turn to for for answers? What do you turn to for comfort? What do you turn to for, for blessing? What do you carve? Maybe some of you can't carve anything. I'm not a good carver of, of physical things, but what do we carve out time for the most if we've got time to do other things? Is it things of the Lord or his people or things that matter for our family? I think we need to be very careful with images, even images that we want to put forward online or on social media. That can become your Lord. And, and there's, there's a, these things aren't sinful in and of themselves, but we need to be careful with, with some of those things. If Paul says coveting is idolatry and we're coveting friends and followers and likes, well, that's an easy thing even for mature believers to wrestle with. Ephesians 5, 5 says a greedy person is an idolater. And so here's a sign of idolatrous coveting. When we're grumbling a lot over what we don't have, that could be a symptom of idolatrous coveting. And by the way, calling a greed a need is idolatry. There's a lot of things we call needs that psychologically has been convinced that we're needs that are not needs biblically. Better to call them a desire than a need. First John talks about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. And then it ends with this statement, the letter of First John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. One of the last books written in the New Testament, John, the last author of the New Testament books, that was deeply on his heart as he's writing and he comes to the end of that, little children, Speaking to believers, but, but certainly this is important for all ages. Keep yourselves from idols. An idol can be anything that you desire so strongly you're willing to sin to get it. That's something that's in an inordinate place in our life. Sin to get it meaning you're, you're willing to manipulate. You're willing to use certain types of words that, that are not godly to get it. Or you sin when you don't get it. You become bitter, and maybe some of you pout, but others of you lash out in sinful anger, yelling, or you go when you talk about someone behind their back because you didn't get what you wanted. Here's what Dr. Lloyd-Jones diagnoses as an idol. Anything central in my life, anything that seems essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend or that holds such a controlling position in my life in so much of my time and attention, my energy and money. If you have a bulletin with you, there's a handout in there that has a, a chart. And this isn't something I came up with. It came from a book called Gospel Eldership. But it's also here on the screen in case you don't have that or part of it with you. But some, some categories to think about and pray about. And I want us to actually, in our time of self-reflection and self-examination before communion, even give some thought to this and maybe even take it home and, and pray about, God, show me if this has become imbalanced or tending towards becoming idolatrous in my life. It can be comfort. And that can look like we use different terms, privacy. or We just want lack of stress. We want freedom. 
It could be approval. And other terms might be, we want affirmation. We need love and, and relationship. And, and those are things that are important in Scripture, but they need to not take the place of God or control. It could be self-discipline. You're just super self-disciplined because you want to control things or you just want certainty. Or in your mind, you just have standards, but it, it can lead to all kinds of other things. Or power. It could be success, winning, influence. I think competitive people need to be very careful, careful there. But there's prices, there's sacrifices for all of those idols. There's things that if you think about what you fear the most, more than God in that third column there, things to wrestle with and think about. Here's what one of the communion hymns has as a line to it. We take the cup in reverence and new commitment take to cast out every idol and live for Jesus' sake. I want to pray that God would help us in this time in particular to, be, to begin and to continue this process of searching our hearts to see what in our life is tending towards the center instead of God and to ask him to forgive us and to cleanse us and where we have, because of one of these things, maybe hurt or offended others that we would resolve today and maybe even more important than communion, resolve to make that right even today. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. Your commands expose us as we look at them as a mirror. We see not only your holiness, but we see our need. Lord, I confess, Lord, this has been convicting even to study and even beginning this past week after what I preached last week, Lord, these are things that any moment, even doing things of the Lord, I confess to you again, Lord, I fall short, but I thank you for Christ. I thank you for his love. And I thank you that because of his love, he's committed to not let us continue in those ways, but to help us, to cleanse us, and to change us. So we ask that you would do that even today and even in this time. In Jesus' name.